Welcome to the Leading Through the Enneagram podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Prince. Together, we will explore how the Enneagram typology system applies to leadership. We interview leaders that share their Enneagram journey and how it's impacted the way they lead in their organizations, in their communities, and in their personal lives. Today's guest is Chip Nydick. Chip is the Chief Catalyst at Kairos Consulting, and he builds leaders. His career has included consulting, teaching, coaching, and leadership roles in the U.S. Marine Corps and the private sector. He values servant leadership, right relationship, and the courageous truth. With advanced degrees in business and engineering, Chip combines logic and intuition to help leaders build a better future. Okay. Hi, Chip. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rachel. Thanks. So you are well-versed in Enneagram. So we're going to start with just you telling our listeners what your core type is, what type do you identify with, and then talk a little bit about your Enneagram story. How did you stumble upon it? What were your thoughts initially? I know I've shared with the listeners that I was initially a naysayer and a little bit of a skeptic. So I'm curious how it came to you, what type you identify with, and then um, what your first reaction was to it. My friend Daniel Fuller, I have to give him full credit for introducing me to the Enneagram. I was introduced to it actually about eight years before that. I read a book by David Benner called The Gift of Being Yourself, which is a phenomenal book. And he he devoted about two pages, maybe one and a half pages in his book to the Enneagram. And I looked and I thought, man, this is just a horoscope or it's voodoo magic. It's not very impressive. And I just discarded it. And then, you know, it may maybe pop up occasionally over the next few years. And I was sitting down having a beer with Daniel and he said, hey, have you heard of this thing, the Enneagram? And I said, yes, it is voodoo magic. It is a horoscope. It has no value. And he said, well, maybe you want to take another look at it. And he started asking me a few questions about myself. And it felt, as they say, as if someone were reading my mail. And I thought, huh, maybe there is actually more power to this than I had given it credit for. The Road Back to You had just been published at that point, and he gave me a copy, and he inscribed something in it that was very thoughtful. And I read through it, and of course, the very first chapter that uh, Suzanne and Ian write about is the Type 8. And I read that when I thought, that's probably me. And then I read through all the other seven types, and I'm like, well, that one's definitely me if I'm one of these types. But my initial reaction was, I think maybe only about 60% of the stuff that's written kind of fits me, but it sure fits me a lot more than the other types. And over the next three and a half years, I've come to believe that more like 95% of that stuff fits me, but it was a gradual waking up to the the idea that different parts of what had been written about eights could possibly be true for me. And what I've learned is that my ego had been defended for many years against some truths that I didn't want to pay attention to. I'm absolutely a type eight Although I don't think wings are all that important, I have a seven wing and probably a gimpy fin little nine wing that I'm trying to grow out. Type eights are sometimes known as the challenger or the boss or the protector. And my core motivation is to is to feel like I am in control and the way that I desire or my, my psychological defense mechanism that helps my ego always feel like it's in control is that I dominate. And so when I'm dominating, it just means people can't dominate me. So I get there and plant the flag first. I own the territory, I take up the space, and then nobody can take charge of me and make me feel weak. So I've just learned over time that my ego will do just about anything to avoid me having to feel weak and vulnerable. 
You mentioned you thought it was about 60% true. Now it's you know more in the 90s. Talk about some of the things that you uncovered, some of the blind spots that you were shown. And, and how long was that journey to discover some of those blind spots? Oh, I suspect the journey is lifelong to discover the blind spots. So it's, it continues, but it's been a robust three and a half years since I was reintroduced to the Enneagram by Daniel. Uh, one that I thought of, in fact, I went to a conference at Redeemer Prez a year and a half, two years ago, and Ian Cron was the the presenter, the guest of honor at this conference. And I, I went up to him and I said, hey, you know, you write about eights being all black and white. And I'm not black and white. I was like, I don't, I like, I think in shades of gray. I know there's lots of possibilities. Everything's on a spectrum. It's not black and white. And he goes, okay. <laughs> he said, he's like, all right. <laughs> like he didn't respond to it really. And then over the next couple of years, I started paying attention. I realized, man, do I like certainty. I love feeling certain. When there's something about which I can have an opinion, I am always certain of my opinion, whatever that opinion is at the given time. Now, it can change over time as I get new information. But I do not like sitting on the fence because it feels weak to me to sit on the fence. It feels strong to take a position. So I realized that that leads to me being a black and white thinker, even when I don't want to. The way my wife describes this is she's like, well, you're extreme. You're all in or you're all out. There is no middle ground with you. If you're all in, it's going to go well. If you're all out, nobody can pull you in and make you do something you don't want to do. So there's a a way of black and white that's different from, for example, Enneagram type one. But it is absolutely about me not wanting to feel weak and choosing a polarity because it feels strong. The, 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 even, even the color white and the color black, those feel strong to me. And gray feels a little wishy-washy. <laughs> yeah, no, I think those, those little things that we uncover over time, and when we ask the people closest to us, so you asked your wife and she said, oh no, this makes sense. I always think that's a, a yeah. good way to kind of validate things or to open our eyes in a different way. So you mentioned yeah. uncertainty. Right now, our world is a little upside down with coronavirus. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how your type reacts to stress because you have an arrow to stress and you have an arrow to growth. So what, how does your type react to stress and how would you describe that experience right now? Yeah, what's funny is uh, I've come to understand stress and security arrows uh, based on some conversations that I've had with Wes Kate on my team. And Wes introduced me to the idea that the stress arrow and the security arrow, or stress point and security point, are actually about relational stress and relational security. And that resonates with me. I'm not 100% convinced that it's true, but I think it's probably true. So for a type 8, the security arrow goes to point, point 0.2, and the stress arrow is at point 0.5. And stress for me, relational stress, generally occurs when I've been too bold or too domineering and I've done unintentional damage relationally. And then I'm like, oh, I did it again. And then I have to withdraw and pause and analyze and say, what happened there? So I think all of our stress points are actually protective for us. So there's some benefit to being at one stress point, but it always also has negative side effects. It has collateral damage that it will do. So for me, being disengaged can have negative consequences. But when I withdraw to figure out what happened, that's actually protected to me so I don't do more damage to relationships. But if you ever see me not fully engaged in a conversation and looking withdrawn or, or thoughtful or contemplative, 
it generally means that something has happened that I didn't anticipate. And now I've got to pause and reflect and say, how do I avoid that from happening again? So I think in these very uncertain coronavirus, COVID-19 times, what, what I'm seeing is a lot of people finding a relational stress and also disintegrating within their own core type. So disintegration means you know stepping down on the level of maturity within one's own type. So as I'm coaching clients, I'm saying, pay attention to your journey to your stress point. Be aware of what you're doing. Observe it non-judgmentally. And that'll give you some insight of like, well, what is stressing you out relationally? How do you address the root cause as opposed to just letting that continue to, to be a, a non-conscious or an unconscious uh, and a sleek way of behaving in the world. So for me, I'm just paying attention to that as I get knocked off center and as I feel not sure-footed in these new times as a small business owner, I'm finding that I'm withdrawing. Now, there's some good things that happen with that, but it's not always good. And sometimes my team needs me to be more fully engaged. So I'm just trying to pay, pay attention to that. And luckily, I have a team of people who are all in on my joke so they can call me out on it even if I don't notice it. Yes, that's, that's wonderful to have a team of people that understand the Enneagram and can call you on some of those things for sure. So the, the stress part that we you know, have covered, you mentioned in there the levels of development. So for some of our listeners that are not as knowledgeable through the Enneagram, I think that's a really important piece of the Enneagram. I use it as a daily check-in personally to look at where I think I was about 75% of the time the day before and what happened during that day. So it's sort of an opportunity for me to journal, meditate on the day before. So I'm curious how often you use those levels of development or can you even describe those to the listeners that we have healthy average and unhealthy versions of our types? Yeah, sure. That's an awesome practice that you do, by the way. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) It works really well. Is it truly daily? Uh, I I always say it's mostly daily. So I would say daily-ish. That's that's even better. I think sometimes if we have too too much rigidity in our habits, it becomes constraining. Yeah. And some of us don't like to be constrained. Yes, I sure don't. Some of us don't like to be constrained more than others don't like to be constrained. Yes. (laughs) Um, So levels of development. One way to think of it, most authors who write about levels of development tend to think about nine different levels. Top three would be the three most healthy Middle three would be the average levels of development or maturation, and the bottom three would be unhealthy. And I I think of these as behavioral and sometimes internal signposts that we can look at to say, where am I in my maturation? And a way you can think of this is we are dynamic people. Our maturation is not a smooth and linear process, and we can step backwards and forwards. So maybe if I look at my, my own level of maturation, I might peg myself and say, well, let's say right now in, in where I am in life, I'm, I'm generally about a, a five, I'm kind of right in the middle. Say nine is the highest and one is the lowest. I'm generally a five. But during any given day, I may stretch up a bit in my maturation and something also may take me back down and I start exhibiting some of those less mature behaviors. So there's a range. It's not bright lines between each of the levels. But I think it's reasonable to say that if we are paying attention, our journey should be continuing to mature up into the higher levels of that type. I believe that personal growth and maturation occurs best in community and is sustained best in community. So I think it's really hard to do that in 
in isolation without other people in community to help you. And that's why, as, as we were talking about before, I think it's so critical to have other people who are in on your joke, understand the things we do that are unhealthy, can call it out with a twinkle in their eye and say, hey, are you doing that again? As opposed to feeling like you're being taken behind the woodshed with somebody who loves you and cares for you and can tell you the, the hard truth in a way that you can hear. Those are some of the moments in my life where I think I've grown the most is when I've had people call things out. So for example, my mother used a phrase to describe how she felt I was treating her once. And she said, I feel dismissed. And then I had to unpack that with my wife later. And I'm like, am I dismissive? And she's like, oh, yes, you are incredibly dismissive. I'm like, I'm dismissive? Me? Sweet little me? How could I be dismissive? She put some examples and she talked about my dynamic when we fight and some of the things that I do. I'm like, oh, man, I am. I'm dismissive. So for me, <laughs> what's helped me in jump up levels slowly, maybe, jump is probably not the right word, creep up slowly, sneak up on the higher levels of maturation is when somebody just hits me in the head with two by four and says, hey, pay attention to this. Look at yourself. And when I've recognized that I've unintentionally done damage, uh, that grieves my heart. And it's a, it's a conviction that makes me want to be a better person to not do that anymore, which is, I think there's a spiritual component to that. But I think even, even from a very therapeutic standpoint, that's just part of human growth. Sure. Yeah. And you bring up a great point about being ready. I think this tool is one that you need to have some readiness for, right? And so I don't think it's for everybody to jump into immediately. I think there's a certain level of self-awareness and the ability to take some of those comments and question other people, even when it hurts, I think is really important. So tell me about that. Do you ever experience leaders in business that just aren't ready for it? Do you always use it with your clients? How does that work? So our work is exclusively with chief executives and their leadership teams. So we are not getting too many people who chronologically are, are super young. There are certain people I've found who have either well-developed antibodies or Teflon armor against the Enneagram. The Enneagram is our default tool that we use with clients, but we've done this work at Kairos for 10 years before we even really liked or started using or the Enneagram within our own lives. So there are tools that we can still use without the Enneagram. We find it's an incredible tool to have in the tool bag, a weapon in the arsenal to, for the, the battles we help people wage. So Richard Rohr says, in the first half of life, we cultivate the virtues in ourselves that build resume. And in the second half of life, we cultivate virtues in ourselves that build eulogy. Uh, love and that. some of my favorite clients, I feel like I have caught them with one foot in resume and one foot in eulogy. And I feel like I myself have one foot in resume and one foot in eulogy. Sort of, it's a, I think a fairly common midlife phenomenon. You know, my, my three children who are age 20, 17, and almost 14, all know their Enneagram types. They self-identified their Enneagram types, but there's, clearly certain parts of it that just don't resonate with them yet. So I'm 48 and I feel like it's a good age to know this. I don't know what it looks like the next 20 or 30 or 40 years for me. But I do think there is something to be said for life journey and having had some failures and hard knocks. And the way I sometimes describe it is 
our ego fixation or our our psychological defense mechanism is a security blanket. It's an important security blanket that actually protects us. We need it to survive. It's a survival mechanism. But at some point, you start feeling like that that security blanket is wrapped around your neck and it's choking you and you need to get some air. You need to loosen that thing up and maybe throw that binky into the fire. Now, when does that happen? I suppose that's different for all people. But I think the Enneagram becomes a clever party trick in for people until they start recognizing their shadow side and recognizing that psychological defense mechanism that has some negative effects that they don't want to live with in their life anymore. So I think what I see as a pattern of younger, is it younger? Yeah, so there's a correlation. I'll say younger, maybe less mature people who want to use their Enneagram type as an excuse to behave a certain way. Well, I'm an eight, so I do this. I'm a seven, I'm a, I'm a nine, so, I, so this is the way I act. And instead, I think the Enneagram is a tool to liberate us from compulsions such that we have choice and we can choose to not be compulsive anyway if we're aware of the root cause of compulsions. And I think the compulsions are largely driven by woundedness. So what we need is healing and a wholeness in those areas of woundedness to stop being compulsive, not just white-knuckling new behaviors. That's, that's not really, I mean, that's a type of choice, but that's not nearly as compelling and durable a solution as true choice that comes from freedom. Yeah. So I've, I've interviewed, I would say probably about 150 people. I have to count them up, but probably, probably about 150 people through the Enneagram. And it's interesting to see that spectrum of readiness. It's not always age related. So sometimes I get people mm. that, that are pretty aware in their twenties. They just haven't had the experience to continue validating the tool. But sometimes I get people that can also look back and figure out how they grew. So that was my personal experience. Yes, I identify as a nine, but I've learned to grow out of a lot of those things. And I think that is the important part about the Enneagram that we're missing. So similar to what you were talking about, you know, it's a party trick to say, I'm a this, or this is my number, and this is how I'm going to be. It's so much more than that. And so part of the reason why I started this podcast was to get some of that, I think, education out there and stop talking about street Enneagram and talk about the real power of it. So I think that's great. And I think a lot of people are over-identifying with their numbers. So any of the tools, I don't care what what tool you're using, if you put yourself in a box, that's not going to be real useful for you. So when you can cut the sides off the box, take the top off and let yourself explore and learn and run, and it's going to be painful, it's going to be uncomfortable, that's when we truly grow. I'm curious your thoughts on why it's useful in business. So it's been... While you know, for the most part, it's been in spiritual direction, more in faith-based areas, but there's no real reason that it has to stay there. So, tell me how you think it's powerful in business. Yeah, there's certainly a, there are many authors who write about and teach about the Enneagram from a Christian perspective. There are also authors who teach about it from a non-Christian religious perspective. And there are authors who write about it from a non-Christian, non-religious, and yet still spiritual standpoint. And I think it's nearly impossible to write about the Enneagram without becoming spiritual, but that doesn't mean that that it needs to be religious. Right. What I find is our approach in Kairos is, although each of us within the Kairos team are animated by our Christian faith, and it guides us in how we think about our work and the redemptive nature of the work that we do, 
we do not insist on any client having a particular faith or being anywhere on their faith journey. I love working with people of all faiths, lots of different levels of maturity in their own life journey. That's all good to me. What I find, though, is one will not find the power of the Enneagram if one is not willing to have a spiritual conversation. And that is, it, there's a depth. It's about our soul. It's about what's going on inside. It's about our woundedness. It's about our healing. That's it. Those, those types of journeys aren't things that a lot of people are comfortable talking about in a business context. Finding the people who are more comfortable with that, that's where you can find deeper power in the Enneagram in a business context. I also think there is benefit for organizations to become more comfortable talking about spiritual things in a business context. And that is a leader's role to lead with vulnerability and authenticity and not just talk about profit margins and performance metrics and behaviors within, within people, but having deeper conversations that get to values and perspectives and attitudes and identity. And those are the things that make the biggest change in people's lives. So part of what I think is powerful about the Enneagram in a business context is it invites, if we engage with it at the depth that it allows us to engage with it, it invites a deeper, more spiritual, more meaningful conversation that is a deeply human and deeply connected way of being in business. And if we look at some of what's happened in you know, Silicon Valley and coming out of New York City, and I'm not talking about coronavirus, but if we look at some of the business approaches that have become cutthroat and ruthless and you know, venture capital firms that just trade out executives like chess pieces on a chessboard until they find the right chemistry, there's a very dehumanizing aspect to the way business is sometimes done. I'm all about profit. I'm all about wealth generation and value creation. And I'm all about doing that in a way that is deeply human and honors who people are as humans. And I think the Enneagram has been a really great tool for doing that. That being said, some organizations already have a deeply human way of doing business, and then the Enneagram is just a natural fit. Some organizations don't, but could be tipped over the edge there. And I think the Enneagram is a tool to invite that type of conversation. And that's where it's been uh, particularly helpful for us within Kairos. It accelerates certain conversations that we naturally have with people just in, in daily life, but you wrap it around this structured tool and it becomes an even more powerful conversation. Yeah. And I agree. I think the structure and even the shared language within business just gives us a way to articulate what's going on. Sometimes we don't know how, how mm. to articulate that in, in a business setting. And so I found that to be really useful among teams when they now have this shared language. You and I definitely share a passion for bringing the humanity back to business. So part of what you do at Kairos or what you do at Kairos is you, you know, coach the, the CEO and you, you know, question if there's a culture issue, how you can potentially change that culture from the top down. So can you talk a little more about what you do on a daily basis and what you've seen outside of even the Enneagram with changing culture in an organization? We have two fundamental ways of engaging with clients. The first is through an executive coaching offering we call infinite coaching, which is we have availability as much as possible, video, text, call meetings with our clients. And the second way we do it is through working with teams of executives. And we think about uh, what we call building a culture of leadership development. 
And there are three indicators of a culture of leadership development. One would be that feedback is offered and received as a gift up and down the chain of command. The second is that people have the tools and the will to get back in the right relationship with each other when trust has broken down. And we find most people in organizations don't have the tools or the will to do that. And the third is uh, the indi- third indicator of that, that culture of leadership development is what we call deep coaching. So instead of just swimming on the surface and giving behavioral coaching, you're doing A, I'd like to see B. It's you're doing A, I think I'd like to see B. If you did B, I think we'd get C. And here's what I think is going on inside of you that needs to shift. And if this doesn't shift, I think you're going to have a hard time permanently getting to B and C. So those indicators are, we work towards helping organizations have more of those indicators. We do that in the context of whatever their business heat is. So most CEOs don't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I think I need a culture of deep coaching to solve my biggest problems right now. So for us, it becomes a root cause that generates a lot of good things in the organization to help you solve business problems. But we've got to stay tied and connected to whatever the business problem is, because that's where the attention and the energy of that executive team is. So the way we think about it is the business problem is what that executive team is most concerned about. What we do is try to pivot their view to say, okay, there's a deeper way to solve that business problem. And some of the things that have, that have felt like friction or an anchor on your ability to solve it are more relational and deeper types of issues. So we're going to build your capacity in those ways such that you can solve those problems. And then part of what we do is help that executive team cascade that culture of the organization. Some of that happens naturally and organically when people start being transformed in the way they think about work. It starts to affect other people in the organization. But if you can be more deliberate about how you cascade it, there's more leverage for solving business problems better at lower, lower levels in the organization. Yes, I love that approach. Less band-aid solutions. Let's really dig into root causes and make real change. I think that's really powerful. So tell our listeners if they wanted to get a hold of you or they want to follow you on social media, where's the best place to to find you? I abandoned Facebook about three years ago because I found it was tapping into my most most voyeuristic and narcissistic tendencies. But I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. (laughs) Uh, You can also find us on our website, which is kairosconsulting.com, K-A-I-R-O-S. And those are the easiest ways to get a hold of me. You can also reach me at chip at kairosconsulting.com. All right. Thank you for that. And I will share that all in the show notes as well. Anything else before we wrap up that you just absolutely have to get out there that you want people to know about the Enneagram? Uh, I want people to know if they don't already what an awesome person you are, Rachel, and how good you are at the, the work that you do. And I've referred a couple of people to you who have come back and said, thank you so much for introducing me to Rachel. She's been phenomenal. The work that she did has changed our perspective on things. So for anybody who wants great, deep Enneagram work, holler at Rachel Pritz. Well, thank you for that, Chip. Right back at you. So I I appreciate that. I'm glad this is a podcast because people can't see me tearing up. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, when you find your calling, Rachel, you, you know, uh, right. it's where the, the, the world's deep hunger meets your deep, deep, deep joy, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Rock on. All right. Bye. Hey, hey, thanks for joining me as we jam on the gram. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get the latest weekly episodes. That's right. I said weekly. And if you want to follow me on LinkedIn and also on Instagram at Indie Enneagram, I would love to have you. 
And just remember, when it comes to personal growth, there are seven days in the week and someday isn't one of them. Have a great week.